0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick. And my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today. Climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. Have we grown so accustomed to buying things new and cheap that we no longer care to repair? Sandra Goldmark is out to change that. A designer, teacher, and entrepreneur, Sandra's work focuses on circular economy solutions to overconsumption and climate change. She is the Director of Sustainability and Climate Action at Barnard College and the author of Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet. A book I am dearly in love with and that has personally changed my views on repairing stuff. I promise this conversation will not just give you hope on reducing waste but that it will change how you approach repairs and shopping in your own home. Welcome Sandra and thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So fun fact we first met at the Seaport where I used to have my office and you had a pop-up repair shop. And consumer that I am, I walked in ready to buy and was so impressed with your concept, seeing that nothing was available to buy, that I then became a regular coming in daily and and kind of spreading the word on repairing. Can you um, tell me, like, were you a born fixer or did this come to you through your work?
1: So my entree into fixing, as it were, really came from theater. I worked for many years as a theatrical set and costume designer And when you are backstage, first of all, you learn how to make things, obviously. And anybody who can make things can fix things. And then you also learn, of course, in theater, a lot of like repurposing and repairing and transmogrifying things. So I just really, I spent so many years, not just making and fixing, but really thinking about stuff and creating worlds with it on stage, that that I think led me to the repair project.
0: Amazing. I'm halfway through the book and I'm just in love with it. I fixed my shoes. So I had some, how are they called? chukis, chokas, I'm not sure. They're rubber boots, right? They have fur in them. They've really, I got them for $30 and they had slits on them. And I have to tell you, I was like, oh, they were $30. I was like, I'll just get a new pair for next year. And then I started reading your book and I was like, why would I do that? I could easily seal that up easily. So I fixed my shoes, then my Vitamix. This is all within a week of reading your book. My Vitamix broke, so that's expensive. Now I bought my Vitamix refurbished, right? So it was good for you. Yeah, it was a little bit less expensive, and thank you Amazon for giving us that option. But then the dial broke, and again, I was reading your book, and I was like, I'm not gonna throw this out. I'm gonna fix it, and I did. And right, (laughs) and then you know other things, ceramic. The little things that are broken they are just laying around the house. And I guess a few things. One, it gave me a confidence. Like, I felt really proud of it. And now I really love that item even more. And I didn't think myself capable. Do you think this is, like, why people don't bother to fix?
1: That's interesting. I mean, I feel like that little moment of empowerment of, like, oh, I fixed my ceramic or I fixed my boot. It's a very nice, small, achievable thing that I actually think has some like bigger repercussions. This is sort of like, we'll we'll get to this of like what the book is about, but it's a little entry point into a whole bunch of really interesting things about how you feel about your own stuff, how we as a society are dealing with waste and consumption and design and all of these issues surrounding stuff and a beginning of like how we could maybe imagine a better system. Like it's so silly, but you fix your little boot. It's like, that's a kind of tiny step on a much bigger road potentially. Yeah. And so the flip side that you asked of like, why don't people do it more often, fix things or get them fixed? I think that is same thing. We've built a system that is so vast that is always nudging us towards the opposite direction. We're so busy. People are working very hard. People don't have time. We have an educational system that has moved us away from working with our hands more and more. And of course, we have this pressure from so many economic forces to just buy a new thing. It's just so much easier Today. So like those forces are big and I definitely think people should not feel bad if they're not like fixing everything in their home or doing sustainable consumption. But the book is hopefully a, a way to get there.
0: So two things that you mentioned that I love and that I also have in my own notes was one, uh, slower and two, working with your hands. Mm. And I think both are extremely important. And that we've seen with COVID and what's going on now and how we're being forced to go slower. But the idea that this, you know, I think back to my grandmother right now, you can't see, but I'm looking at a photograph of my grandfather and and his mother and the farm. My family are farmers. And that time that you would wait for food to grow and to come up in the seasons and honoring that is a way to ground ourselves and also to connect ourselves with our planet, as is working with your hands, so even in urine theater and and when I started good home, which is my cleaning company that I started i I made everything by hand, I was cooking it, I was putting on the label there's a connection to it that also adds value to it, right I mean, what do you think about that? Do you think like and you said today you know things were slower for you, your kids are yeah. you know are away and and I personally, from what I've learned from COVID, is I cut back on my own schedule.
1: It's such a big question. Like, I think so many, many people today are trying to slow down in a lot of ways, like number of emails, number of meetings, how you pack your schedule. So much has changed during COVID. But at the same time, for a lot of people, it's kind of you know, gotten busier in other ways, you know, maybe you're not rushing around as much, but you're like on Zoom all day. I don't know. There's all these different ways, I think, for different people that it has panned out. But I th- I feel a lot of people seem to be talking today about this need to slow down. And I do think like, again, with like sort of starting working with your hands is is a really great way to actually just begin practicing that. Like a lot of people do it through cooking, I think, you know, maybe repairing rubber boots isn't your thing. But a lot of people like to cook, I think, because it is a a chance to be like, well, there's a certain pace this is going to happen at. I happen to be guilty sometimes of like rushing when I cook and trying to slam things on the table. But I do try to remind myself, like, you don't have to rush. And I think that that bigger question of what is happening to our society, how things are escalating and feels like every year feels faster in the news cycles. I think it's a big question that we all have to examine, like, is there a way to slow down? And I, I don't really know the answer.
0: Sure. I think by the simple act of repairing and when we we look at our stuff that not disposable, then we also, we stop purchasing as much,
1: right? Yeah. Like you described it yourself, like you were sort of going to go buy the new Vitamix and then you had a little moment of pause, a little slowdown. And I think that moment of pause before you buy is a really important one because it's, Again, right now, the systems are built so that it's super easy for you to just go click Amazon and buy the new Vitamix. Blah, blah, blah. But if you pause before you buy it and maybe fix it, or, or maybe you can't, maybe it's not fixable, but even just the pause of, do I need this? Do I need a new one? Can I fix the old one? Is a, actually really powerful in terms of shopping or that part of the cycle. Yeah. yeah. More
0: conscious, conscious consumerism. So... I briefly mentioned your your pop up shop, but that it's kind of where it started. Well, where I mean, like, get me like back to where you know you you were in theater, and so you would do this. But then what happened? Were you just like, I mean, I read the book, so I kind of know what happened. But tell people like what you know this idea from theater to actually you had repair shops popped up that's around the city, which were yeah. Was super so cool. we,
1: you know, yeah. So I had designed for theater for you know my whole life which creates a lot of waste. That's another way that theater kind of led me to this, is that as a designer, you are just creating thousands and thousands of pounds of waste every show, every year. You're buying costumes off the rack, cheap stuff that is made for not fair wages. And and after a while, it started to feel not right. I felt this big cognitive dissonance between things I thought I cared about and the way I was acting every single day at work. So with that background of, I know how to make things. I know how to fix things, but I'm also talk about speed, doing ten or twelve shows a year, and like we're making the set as fast as we can, and we're ordering the costumes as quick as we can, so we gotta get on stage tomorrow. Like it didn't work. It wasn't didn't make sense. So in that moment, I, I had my second child, so I was home on maternity leave, which was a little pause in the work, a little slowing down of that hamster wheel. And at that same time, like you, a bunch of stuff like just broke around the house. For me, it was a a toaster oven, a lamp, a vacuum, a backpack. nothing very exciting. But I felt kind of stubborn about it. like i didn't I didn't want to buy a new vacuum. I thought it was stupid that I couldn't get it fixed easily. And I knew that it was probably possible, probably frankly, easy to fix it. That was from theater. So somehow, in that pause, it's funny, yeah, in that moment of stoppage that having you know, a maternity leave can sometimes bring for your second child, your first child, you're trying to take care of the baby. But second child, I was like, oh. ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can actually rest a little. I don't know. So in that moment, I thought, well, I want to do something. I want to test this out. Do other people feel frustrated as well? Do other people feel like it doesn't make sense? Like that dissonance I had at work, the way I wanted to be and the way I was working and at home, the way I felt like it should be possible to get this vacuum fixed. And yet the reality, that cognitive dissonance, I wondered if other people felt it. So long story short, we decided to start opening these little, well, just one. We were going to start with just one little repair shop. And so we got a little storefront in our neighborhood, and we got some theater friends to come and help fix things. And people in the neighborhood started showing up, and we started fixing things. And it was fun, and everybody was excited about it. And it was like a four-week pop-up. And it felt like we had really hit a nerve in the neighborhood, and it was about repair, but it was about other deeper things as well. Stuff, and community, and slowing down, and and the system. So we kept going. And over seven years, we did, I think it was more than a dozen of these short-term shops, and the one you came to actually was the last one, where we expanded, instead of just a repair shop, we also had what we called good new items, like, because you are going to buy new sometimes, and so what makes something good? We had used items to sort of try to embody this idea that why is the vast majority of things that we buy new? Like, wh- why? It doesn't make sense, given how much there is in the world. And then, of course, we had the repair shop to sort of bring in this idea of a circular pattern. And so that's it. Like, that's the whole story of the repair shops, of how they started. And it went on a long
0: time, seven years. <laughs> do you think you'll do another or are you, are you done...
1: I don't think I'm going to do more of the shops necessarily because for me, I had this big dilemma. Like, do I keep doing these shops? Do I quit my teaching job and full-time run these shops? And while I was asking that question, I got the opportunity to write the book. Mm -hmm. And the book felt like a really important way for me to kind of tell the story and hopefully inspire other bigger businesses to think about their business model. And could they pick this up? And to help individuals feel like, oh, this is possible. I can do this. I don't have to feel frustrated and overwhelmed. And lastly, to sort of point out some of the policy changes that need to happen to kind of really pave the way for a better system of stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I was struck with when we met was your idea, and I think you did meet with Target. I'm not sure I'll let you go into that, about bringing in resale into the retail shops but like Walmart as you're saying why doesn't Walmart have a repair shop for the stuff we buy there like great question so were you successful in uh, meeting with some of these corporations i did i met
1: with target i think it's going to happen it is happening in 2013 when i oh yeah i forgot to mention that my first thing was i wrote this big letter to Walmart to say you got to do this and And then we thought, well, they're not going to read our letter. Let's do our own little shop. But in 2013, people were kind of laughing indulgently, like, oh, that's so funny, as if to think a big multinational corporation would change their whole business model to incorporate reuse and repair. Ha ha ha. Their core business model is about selling new stuff. And I thought then, and I think I'm being proved right now that they are looking down the road and they know that that model is not sustainable. And the proof is actually in the pudding, which is that Ikea, just after the book came out in 2020, Ikea committed to becoming fully circular by 2030. And they instituted a global buyback program. They're really thinking about reuse and refurbishment and repair. They're still in the baby stages,
0: okay?
1: but they're doing it. They've committed to it and you can bet that Walmart and Target and everybody is also thinking about it and talking about it. So it's really exciting. Like it's happening.
0: That is fantastic. Do you think it was because of your letter that you wrote to Walmart? Because I do. (laughs) That's awesome.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure I ever actually sent it. You did? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I can take credit, but I think I can count myself as part of What I do call that larger stuff movement as a part of a lot of people in businesses, small and large, looking at this messed up system and being like, all right, we got to We got to do this differently.
0: Yeah, you give me so much hope. I'd love talking to big brained individuals such as yourself, like big change makers who have these amazing ideas and it's happening. And it just I don't know. It just it gives me hope. So thank you. What about fashion? We know that that's such a huge problem. Personally, I only buy now. Like the Real Real has been a game changer for me. If I wear it and then I get tired of it, I resell it on Real Real or I repair it. Like there's no need anymore. Do you see that model happening? Like for the Gap? Yeah,
1: every business in the world is looking at the explosion of resale in fashion because you can't not see it. And fashion is really interesting within this whole world of circularity and repair and reuse, because like Ikea, in some ways, they're sort of the worst offenders. You know, like Ikea wrote the book on disposable furniture. So it's really interesting that they're the ones who are really going hardest on circularity. And in the fashion world, of course, they've got fast fashion sort of to cope with and atone for. And because I think of the huge backlash against all of the social and environmental impacts of fast fashion... The fashion industry has some of the most advanced and most interesting initiatives of surrounding circularity. There's still a huge way to go, but it's just taking off, and it's it's exciting so they in some ways their fashion is leading the way, I think, to this new kind of system of stuff.
0: Oh cool. Well, I can't wait to see that. yeah, I think so far I've only seen I know Eileen Fisher.
1: Eileen Fisher, Patagonia, REI. There's the, the yeah. sort of Eileen Fisher and then the sports, the outerwear people. But then there's things like Thread Up, Real Real, Poshmark, Depop, all of these different exchange sites. Like they're really powerful. It also happens to be logistically easier because clothing, you can warehouse it more easily. You can ship it more easily. Like it's harder to do for couches, let's say, or bulkier yeah. items.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, you brought up an interesting subject of Ikea, how they were. They were like disposable furniture. Like it was like, oh, I'm not going to buy Ikea. I'm going to buy something that I'm going to have for a long time, you know, and then here they are making these changes. They were also the first to ban uh, PFOAs. They don't use flame retardants anymore, you know, doing really good things. You can buy a mattress from Ikea that's inexpensive that will not have flame retardants in it, which is important. And they're kind of leading the way.
1: Yeah.
0: Which I think we do have to look at. Also, when you're looking at furniture, you know, I have, uh, you know, stuff, you know, I mean, I'm I'm an 80s kid, so I, I had everything. All my clothing was resale and my furniture, too. You know, kids would just pick it up off the street and do that, but not so much anymore. So how do we get over that? I would love to, if you have any suggestions or what people could do particularly like with their furniture. I know, you know, people are trying to upgrade or it's like, as so many people have said, you know, during COVID, like Salvation Army isn't picking up. Like people don't want the stuff anymore because of COVID, you know, and there's guilt. Like, you know, we just got a new couch. We've had a couch for 15 years. Our other one was still okay, but it only could fit two people and we have three. So you know, like, what can we do with that?
1: So this is where the book has these really simple steps, have good stuff, not too much, mostly reclaimed, care for it, pass it on. And the key there, the key step is mostly reclaimed. Like If we want to be able to pass on our couches or t-shirts or blenders or whatever it is, when we're done with them, we need to be buying used ones and refurbishing or recovering them if, if they're not exactly right for some reason. But if we're only donating, It's very logically, it doesn't make sense. There has to be a market for these goods. And for large items like couches, it has to be a local market. So one of the best companies in New York is Apt Deco, A-P-T Deco. They sell and you can sell and buy on their site. They have really nice curated goods so that, you know, you're not combing through like 80 pages of Craigslist and having to, you know, they deliver And that pop-up that you saw, almost all the furniture there was from App Deco. Amazing. And it's like that is the kind of startup that gets me super excited because it is what it is. People's instinct is to say, "I want to donate this," but as you said, Goodwill is glutted; they won't take it anymore. Salvation Army is full. Even this is this predates COVID. Yeah. The only way out of that is for everybody to be buying used instead of buying new, and you can do it in ways now today where just like you are now totally comfortable on the real real like it works for you. Yeah, We're doing the same for furniture. App Deco is the company that's like furthest down the road. And it's going to be so exciting when we get there. Oh, I can't part wait. of that has yeah. to be refurbishing and repair. Cause like sometimes a couch needs to be recovered or a chair dewobbled. And there is an end of life part to this conversation as well. Like I'm not crazy. Sometimes something's at the end of the line, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that circle, that's what needs to get easier for people. So like, you shouldn't be puzzled anymore, hopefully, when you're like, oh, how do I do this? You buy it off App Deco or some of those similar sites, and you sell your old couch on there. And we've created a loop.
0: There you go. Well, again, big brain. You are so smart. And I'm going to check out App Deco right away and see that because that that is it. And make it easy like the real real. And I just, you know, it just comes and it goes and it just flows and is completely circular. Do you have any thoughts on plastic?
1: mm I have a lot of thoughts on plastic. I don't have a lot of good answers on plastic. It's so complicated. It feels so bad. If you're a data person, if you look at the numbers of the amount of waste and the really low numbers of recycling rates, if you're an image person and you look at the pictures of decomposing albatrosses and whales with plastic in them, however, the message gets through to you, it is not a good message. But it's everywhere in our society. It does have some uses, some really important uses. I guess for me, like, the answer or an answer that I have for plastic is that we need to begin as a society to use it way, way, way more judiciously. Like, let's start there. Let's not say no more plastic, it's going to go away. But how can we use it really much more carefully and thoughtfully so it's not all over the place, single use?
0: Yeah. I mean... I haven't seen anything, as you and I both know, if it can even be recycled, it can be recycled five times max, right? Then it turns into microplastics. It's not infinitely recyclable, like say aluminum is. Now, aluminum is much more expensive. As a manufacturer of cleaning products, we have a lot of our stuff in plastic. I try to keep as much as I can in glass. I would switch to aluminum immediately, but it's $5 for one bottle, even if I'm I buying 10,000. Yeah. I've-
1: I think I'm not sure about this, but I think aluminum also has a pretty high impact in terms of the manufacturing and recycling process. Yeah. I think the key when we talk about packaging, the key is we need to move away from single use. Yeah. Like that is the core of the problem. There's no single use product, except sometimes paper. You know, which isn't applicable for every every use. <laughs> There's very few things that I look at where I'm like, this should be single use. This feels right for single use. There are a few. Do you know Loop?
0: Yeah.
1: From TerraCycle, like what they're doing with packaging is really interesting. And the idea is just reusable. You know, it's not a new concept. It's like milk bottles in the 1940s.
0: Yeah. No, it's not. It's definitely not. But I, Challenging. I'm not a fan completely of their model because mm. I do think there's a bit of, personally, I think there's a bit of greenwashing there in the sense that it just doesn't make sense to send back one Hagen Daz container in metal to have it, you know, versus all the shipping and all of that. You know, I think it helps to make people have an idea that these companies, oh, they're working on it. So if I just wait long enough, and again, it's 25 years, it'll be okay, but it's not.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And also from a logistical point of view,
0: we can't it's have ridiculous. all these multiple streams. We can't. You know, I don't know if we can really it's have complicated. 500 bags of potato chips of different brands.
1: Right. And then have all those packages go back to the correct, Right. you know, <laughs> to the correct manufacturer. Right.
0: It is a discussion. Like, I don't think anyone does have that answer yet, but will people also be willing to scale back? I think that when it comes to what you've hit on is with things and that things that we repair and, and in the book you cite, you know, there's some people come in with some very interesting things that they want repaired that you may necessarily think like, ah, I don't know, but it was obviously dear to them. On back to that, I would love to hear, what's some of the favorite things that you've repaired from that uh, pop-up shop?
1: So we fixed so many things. A lot of it was kind of, our bread and butter was lamps and little small appliances and furniture, chairs. And then we got like some oddball stuff. Oh, we got a lot of jewelry and ceramics, but then there were toys. We did a polyester therapy tunnel, which was like a big long tunnel for children to crawl through. (laughs) One of my favorite was the chi revitalizer. It's a machine that swings your legs back and forth to revitalize your chi. Supposedly, nice. And it was just a fun one because it was, it was such a goofy name. And you know, we tested it out after we fixed it in the shop. And like, <laughs> I don't know if our chi was revitalized, but it got me thinking about like all of these objects that we all have and live with, and how dependent we are on them, and how entangled we are with all of our stuff and yet sometimes don't even realize. That was really like what that crazy tidal wave of broken objects taught me. It's like, wow, it is all around us all the time. And, and half the time we don't even see it or think about it, you know?
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, I'd love to see the chi Revitalizer. There are, there's so many just crazy, bizarre things. Now, are you, are you a fan of Marie Kondo? Do you believe we should have less? So my feeling on well, there's two sort
1: of questions in there. The minimalism thing. I think people should have the amount of stuff that feels right to them. I think on average in this country, most people have more stuff than is right for them. I think a lot of people feel cluttered, feel overwhelmed, are kind of drowning and stuff, can't deal with it. I don't think that people should feel like they have to aspire to some like external standard, like, you shouldn't feel like your home needs to look like architectural digest or it's kind of like food. Like you shouldn't feel like your body has to look like some weird external ideal. Like your body should be what your body is. Your home should be what is right for you and your family. So I'm not into the minimalism thing unless that's your thing. And I think Marie Kondo has some really great strengths in terms of Like if you need an intervention, if you are drowning and cluttered and overwhelming, you do need to go through that process of purging and getting to that place that feels right for you. And I think her method is great for that. Like you really can get rid of a whole bunch of stuff, get to that baseline. And then what my book is hoping to do is to say, then what? This is the big gap in Marie Kondo is then what? How do you move forward? How do you live after you've gotten to your baseline? and my book is saying that it's possible and it's not that hard. So, I would hope that you like someone could read Marie Kondo and then be like, "Great, I did that. Now what?" And then they could read my book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sandra, so I know you talk about maintenance that that's really important. Can you elaborate on that and explain to me how we can maintain our stuff?
1: Yeah, that question of maintenance actually really was linked to me with that object, the chi revitalizer. And that object anchors a chapter called God and Stuff, where I I really went out on a limb here, but I was trying to explore different concepts of how we relate to objects. So is it a, do we have a model of ownership? Do we have a model of relationship with the things around us, whether it's something as small as an object or as big as like, you know, God's creation, the whole world that we live in, and how some different religious traditions describe that relationship and asking whether we can begin or how we can begin to move towards a model of maintenance and care. And there was a an art exhibit I saw around that time of the Tea revitalizer by this woman, Mira latterman Ukalis. I don't know if you've heard of her. She did touch sanitation in New York. And they had an amazing retrospective at the Queens Museum when I was doing these shops. And she does, her work is all about seeing and capturing the work of care of maintenance. So she cleaned things. She took photographs of office workers cleaning buildings. She shook the hand of every sanitation worker in New York. And she wrote this manifesto about how we value development over maintenance work and how we pay for the new and the shiny and progress. And we don't, certainly don't pay for and often don't even see that work of maintenance. And it made me realize like, Yes, repairing blenders and stuff is maintenance and is kind of devalued in our society. But that artist's work made me realize that we also don't see the work of child rearing and teaching and cleaning our homes. And we don't pay for that incredibly important service that is, back to the beginning of the chapter, that is part of some of these different religious traditions. That it's not always about ownership or growth or the new thing, but sometimes it's about maintaining what you have and valuing that as a key action. So anyway, that that's G revitalizer. That carried a lot of weight, that poor G revitalizer.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love maintenance and I love how you tied that in. And it's a metaphor for how we take care of our society and how that isn't valued, as you said, and that it is the bright and the shiny and the new that we're attracted to but not giving value to what is essentially in life is a marathon. This isn't a sprint. We see everything as a sprint. And I think it goes back to the beginning of our conversation when we're talking about slowing down and having that appreciation. And if you maintain your stuff, it has more value. It just, it gives it more importance, you know, like a, a desk or something that you've had in your family for years and you know, who's not to say that the mid-century modern desk that I'm sitting at right now, like, you know, that my son's daughter, it could have that importance. And we've lost that. And I think your book, it's an emotional book as well as taking physical action.
1: Absolutely. And it kind of goes back to your first thing of like a little pause and that little moment of care to fix your rubber boots. Yeah. Yeah can be sort of a symbol or a precursor to maybe a larger societal shift of like pausing and elevating care so that it's not that shiny and new isn't good. Shiny and new is wonderful, but we can elevate care and maintenance alongside it.
0: Yes, that mind shift definitely has to take place in order for us to survive. I absolutely believe that. Like, we're always pushing innovation, innovation, innovation. I think Bernie Sanders had said, you know, Elon Musk is like, we're going to go to the moon in this. And then Bernie Sanders was like, great. But can we really focus on healthcare right now? Because not everyone has that. And
1: that's that. That's a classic example. Yeah. Of yeah. like development, progress, go to the moon. But we have people who need to be taken care of in some basic ways. And we need to pay for that and value that work
0: in a yes. big way. Yes. And another thing, Sandra, that I would add is that buying new things and constantly feeling like you have to upgrade, not only is money, but it's your time. And once you're happy with the amount, the stuff you have, like, okay, it's nice to have a new lipstick. I agree with that. I get that, you know, but like... It doesn't always have to be like this constant thing of buying.
1: No, it's a treat. It's a wonderful treat. Yes,
0: and we could just sit and then guess what we can do with that time, that stuff that we're always complaining about, that we don't have enough time for our family. We don't have time to take a picnic, see our friends, have that phone call. Well, you do have that time then, you know, because you're not busy, you know, like I have to go buy a new jacket for a trip or whatever, et cetera. So anyhow. So tell us again, what are the things that we need to look out for in our own?
1: So the way forward, and again, this applies to individuals as much as businesses, is have good stuff. So if you're going to buy something new, you should pause. You should think about whether you really need it and where you're going to get it and whether you can find something good, sustainably and ethically produced, repairable, repairable. Basically, new stuff is where the impact comes from on the planet and on the communities who make our stuff. So I think when we're buying new, we need to really be careful and kind of do it right and rarely. Step two is not too much. We do need to find ways to keep that clutter down. Again, pausing before you buy is a good way. (laughs) Doing a little Marie Kondo if you need to. (laughs) Step three is mostly reclaimed. This for me is like a key part of it that we need to all of us shift our stuff diet from mostly new, which is what it is in this country today, to mostly used. Like the vast majority of things that come into your home can and should be used, reclaimed, salvaged, vintage, whatever word you like. And you don't want to just be adding used stuff on top of your new stuff diet. You want to turn the volume down on new stuff and up on used stuff. Step four is care for it, which means repair, maintenance, cleaning, Just, again, really valuing that work of caring for what we have is important. And then step five is pass it on. Like, not everything you buy do you have to treasure forever and ever. It's okay. You can be done with it or decide you want a a different one. And you just need to find a way to pass it on into another system. Like, give it to somebody else. Sell it on App Deco. Ideally, live in a system where it can be broken down into its component parts and remanufactured, you know. Some of these steps you can do right now as an individual, and some of them we need some bigger systemic stuff to get in place, but it doesn't mean you can't start right now.
0: Amazing. I love that. I love that. And the, I'm so into that app deco and also looking forward to our places where we will be able to, like, I, to go to West Elm. I have a desk. I don't need it. It's a great desk. Can't sell it right now get it back to them and have someone else buy it. I mean, it's just, I'm super excited. So tell me, so we've come to the end um, where the last question is, is what I ask everyone is, what keeps you being the change and not giving up? So I know that the space can be a lot to hold and that there's disappointments along the way, but what keeps you in hope and what keeps you just getting up in the morning and being the change?
1: Well, that's very kind. I don't know that I do get up every morning to be the change, but um, (laughs) for me, it it feels good. Like it feels better to be trying. There are definitely days when I get frustrated and want to give up and say, this is stupid. But generally speaking, it feels right to be trying to make the world better and live in a way that I don't have that cognitive dissonance, like live in a way where I can try to be in alignment with who I want to be and how I hope the world can be. And then, of course, it helps to look at what other people are doing and be inspired by what they're doing and to feel like, yeah, I can make some change in my little corner of the world. That it feels good.
0: So, Sandra, tell us, where can we find you? First of all, where can we buy your book? Where do you want us to buy your book? Can we follow you on Instagram, Twitter, any of that, website?
1: So I'm on, my website is sandragoldmark.com and there are links to the book there, especially for people in New York. There are a couple New York City bookstores like Word Up Books and Community Bookstore. People are also welcome to buy it used. I practice what I preach (laughs) I think that is great or share it, you know, give it to a friend, get it from a friend. And I am on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff at my name, Sandra Goldmark are my handles
0: amazing amazing well thank you so much i'm just i'm thrilled to have you on today and such incredible knowledge that you've shared with us and it's directly impacting our climate and how we're living so thank you sandra appreciate it thank you so
1: much for having me it's really fun chatting
0: i hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired we grow with supporters and listeners like you so please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at BeTheChange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.BeTheChange.nyc. That's BeTheChange.nyc. Thank you and be well.